Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Pani Baraswamy. Uh, she's an associate professor at Mount Sinai. She works on uh, liver diseases, uh, liver-associated type issues, transplantation, hepatitis, etc. Pani, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I hope the first obstacle is I said your last name properly or close to it. I don't know. We'll see. Yes, it was correct. Right. <laughs> it's a challenge. Well, great. Tell me about your work uh, surrounding the liver. What you know, there's a lot to deal with in regards to the liver. What do you focus on? So as you mentioned, I'm a hepatologist. Um, my clinical interests are in taking care of patients with very advanced liver disease or cirrhosis or end-stage liver disease. And this has fueled kind of my uh, area of interest in uh, viral hepatitis outreach and health services related research. So what this means is um, really looking at working with communities that uh, have been hardly reached for healthcare, but are at risk for viral hepatitis, either B and or C, and work with uh, these communities at risk to provide uh, education testing, and then um, try to overcome barriers to link people who are infected with one of these viruses into healthcare. So uh, from what I understand, we've made a lot of progress in uh, hepatitis C and well, A, B, and C. Uh, now it's, it's much more treatable than it used to be. But what, um, you know, do a lot of people still get infected with various hepatitis strains and uh, what happens to them right now clinically? So um, the two um, hepatitis that can cause really chronic disease, um, most notably are hepatitis B and hepatitis C. Um, hepatitis B is a, um, a DNA uh, virus and it largely infects foreign-born populations. So there's a very particular geographic distribution uh, to hepatitis B and that has to do a lot with how it's transmitted, which includes something called vertical transmission or transmission from mother to child um, at uh, the time of birth or around the time of birth. And so there are parts of the world where there is a lot of hepatitis B and here in the United States, uh, we see a lot of people who immigrate from places that have much higher rates of hepatitis B. So here in the United States, uh, you know, up to two thirds of hepatitis B related infections are actually in persons born outside of the United States, uh, most commonly in a part of the world where there is much more hepatitis B infection. Um, here in New York City, which is where I practice, uh, at Mount Sinai, uh, we know that 30 to 40 percent of people living in New York City are not even born in the United States. So we see um, an even kind of greater disproportionate number of uh, people living with hepatitis B infection. For hepatitis C, uh, which is most commonly transmitted um, through what we call percutaneous or blood-blood exposure, um, these, uh, this infection is most commonly in uh, people who have a history of injection drug use, um, people who may have received 
blood transfusions or blood products uh, and or organ donations prior to 1992, which is when a test for hepatitis C became available. Um, and the challenges with both of these um, liver diseases is that they're largely asymptomatic or silent. Uh, they're most commonly silent at the time of infection um, and then remain silent, uh, but can silently be doing a lot of damage in the liver and cause very advanced liver disease and uh, increase your risk for liver cancer, liver cirrhosis, and uh, uh, need for liver transplant and death from liver disease. So um, our work is really focused on uh, targeted outreach to communities that are at risk. So for example, with hepatitis B, we partner a lot in the community with foreign-born uh, organizations and communities. So some of the uh, work we've really focused on over the last several years has been in the Asian-born and African-born communities that have some of the highest rates of hepatitis B worldwide. Well, why then, do they? Uh, why do these communities have hepatitis? Do they know? Have they been told by their doctors, for instance, you know, blood-to-blood -blood, uh, transmission occurs, and these are the circumstances that that cause it? Or are they? I mean, are they being instructed how to mitigate it? Yeah. So that's a really great question. Um, there are a lot of uh, reasons for why the in infection burden so great in these populations. A lot of these infections have not yet been diagnosed. So a lot of these people are living with infection, but don't know that they are infected. So, um, and this, this is due to a number of, uh, of, of issues, um, including uh, lack of health insurance, lack of access to physicians that uh, might speak your own language, uh, knowing how to navigate the healthcare system in the United States. Um, a lot of perceptions that are uh, culturally rooted in why people seek healthcare, right? So uh, in other parts of the world, you go and see uh, a physician or a healthcare provider because you have symptoms, right? It's symptom driven. And um, the challenge for us as um, liver disease, infectious disease doctors and primary care doctors is that um, we are trying to uh, educate people about being at risk for this virus based on where they were born, um, because again, of that risk of mother to child and or early childhood transmission, and offer testing to those that we do see in our practices. So there are still a lot of patients who don't come into our practices who are at risk, and so that's why we try to take on a community-based strategy where we move testing into the community where we know a lot of at-risk communities reside and are not uh, being reached. Uh, very well. well. What are what are some symptoms, if there are any, of A, B, or C that people listening, for instance, could say? You know, my my mother or my uncle said such and such. Maybe they need to get tested. You know, like what what kinds of things are predominant that may signal this? So, at the time of infection, some people might experience what we call a viral prodrome, which that which can mean uh, having fever, malaise, muscle aches kind of not just really feeling their best uh, for several days, sometimes up to a couple of weeks. Um, very less commonly, we can see patients actually or people present with more profound symptoms of being yellow in their eyes, you know, what we call jaundice, um, coming in very sick from fatigue, nausea, vomiting, uh, and, and muscle aches. Um, but the vast majority, 65 to 70%, 
um, often won't be able to tell us when or how they got it because of the asymptomatic um, nature of the disease. But what, what brings them into the doctor? Is it, you know, they're just, they're sick, uh, it feels like maybe flu to them or something else. They go in, the normal tests don't work. Uh, so they test further and then they discover hepatitis. So like, like how is it found? Normally? Yeah, so here in the United States, we have recommendations by groups like the United States Preventative Service Task Force, which actually recommend that we um, offer testing for people, whether or not they have symptoms. Um, and if they are born or have parents who are born in a, in a part of the world where there is a lot of hepatitis B infection. So it's kind of part of the screening measures that primary care doctors should be taking with um, their patients by asking them where are they born. Um, and what we find is that unfortunately, a lot of provider, primary care providers are tasked with doing a lot of different things uh, in terms of screening for a patient, which can include things like you know, colorectal cancer screening for people above the age of 50 and breast cancer screening for uh, women beyond a certain age. Um, so it's really kind of that burden of uh, trying to screen patients who largely are asymptomatic often falls under the primary care doctor's responsibility. Now, by the time a patient's getting referred to see me as a specialist, for example, in a transplant institute, usually patients are quite sick from their liver disease, are showing signs of liver failure, such as uh, swelling in their legs and their abdomen. They may have had bleeding complications. They may have um, a confusion problem related to the uh, liver dysfunction. Uh, and or liver cancer. So hepatitis B and C viruses are the leading cause for why we see patients develop liver cancer globally and here in the United States. Hmm. So how do people get to see you? You know, why do they become so acutely sick? Why do they end up in liver failure before they come to see you? You know, where's so, the, the breakdown, you think? Yeah, so I think um, a lot of the breakdown happens to be with testing very early on. Um, you know, here in the United States now, for example, we test all pregnant women with each pregnancy for hepatitis B. And this is to understand what the mother's status or the pregnant woman's status is before she gives birth, to know how we can better protect a baby at the time of birth from getting hepatitis B infection, for example. Um, by the time they're seeing me in a, a liver transplant setting, they've often had this virus for 20, 20 to 40 years. Um, and often, again, silently, the virus causing a lot of damage. So inflammation leads to healing, which leads to scarring. And that cycle can lead to more and more scarring over time and lead to a condition that we call cirrhosis, um, which is kind of a fancy medical term for a lot of scarring in the liver. And um, once you develop a lot of scarring in the liver, you can start to, over time, develop signs of liver failure. So um, the liver is responsible for uh, keeping us our fluid state very balanced. And so when it gets sick, you can develop leg swelling or, you know, fluid in the abdomen. You can develop confusion problem or bleeding problems. So those are all signs or symptoms somebody might come to me with. What are some of the, um, you know, since hepatitis B, is it B or C or both that can stay with someone for 20 to 40 years before they uh, get peculiarly sick? So it's actually both. Um, the one notable difference is that um, since 2014, we've actually had curative treatments finally after decades for hepatitis C infection, um, which has given us hope that we might be able to 
halt uh, the progression of disease or slow the progression of disease and sometimes maybe even reverse uh, the progression of disease if we can get enough people cured soon enough. So um, with hepatitis B, we also have very effective uh, treatments. We actually most notably have a highly effective vaccine so that if we are able to get people vaccinated at very young ages, uh, and offer testing in pregnancy for hepatitis B to women who are pregnant, um, we have a real chance at trying to curb the public health impact, right, of people developing liver cancer, liver failure, and dying from liver disease. Since these, um, these conditions can be in, for someone, in someone for so long, do you think that um, the person's asymptomatic for a very long time, and all of a sudden there's a trigger event that makes them very ill and you know, puts them on a path towards rapid decline? And if so, what is that? Is that are there comorbidities yeah. that seem to go along with it? Yeah, so it's not uncommon for patients to have comorbidities, um, but it is exactly as you just mentioned, it's kind of all of a sudden they develop a complication for many of them. Um, they may end up in the hospital because they develop a confusion problem and they get worked up and they find out they have liver cirrhosis and liver failure. Uh, they may develop uh, abdominal pain and come into the ER and get imaging and we find that they have a big liver cancer that's that's um, you know grown over time um, so yeah for a lot of patients it's that they don't know that they've had a liver disease until uh, boom they develop a complication related to uh, liver failure um, and so I think one of the challenges we have is trying to get the word out early to people who don't have symptoms but may be at risk and try to get them tested so we know what their status is and if they're infected then try to transition them into care well is there anything that jumps out any particular comorbidity that uh you know perhaps again it's just a theory that maybe the you know hepatitis b for instance or even c it's it's maybe it's not harmful for a long period of time in someone it kind of has like a you know a coexistence and then there's a triggering event that turns it pathogenic yeah so i think um I think the so so kind of what you're describing is somewhat of like this two hit kind of hypothesis, right? Like where you kind of are living with one thing and maybe a second thing comes along and uh, might trigger. Um, I think what we know based on these viral infections that by themselves uh, they can be injurious over time. You don't have to have comorbidities um, and you don't have to have a triggering event. Now, the one thing I will say is that um, certainly uh, what has been on the rise is. Um, having other risk factors for other liver diseases. So we've had certainly increasing uh, rates of alcohol use uh, and abuse. And um, we've also seen, you know, uh, increasing uh, body mass index indicative of, you know, higher rates of obesity uh, here and in other parts of the world. And these things might certainly provide an additional injurious mechanism to the liver but they're not required for you to see somebody develop liver cancer, liver failure, or end-stage liver disease from just hepatitis B or hepatitis C alone. So it's kind of a bit different than, you know, for say, for example, things like autoimmune hepatitis, where we think there could be another trigger that really unmasks uh, or causes it to be, you know, more significant disease. So is there anything that people can do once they get to you? Are you just doing palliative care or like what's the the focus of the clinical side of what you do, what can you do to help people in these end stage uh, yeah. issues? 
So um, it really depends uh, on the patient. Obviously, here in the United States, we um, have uh, you know somewhat more accessible uh, option for liver transplantation for some patients. Um, however, it is not an option for every single patient. Uh, patients need to have insurance, have really good support, um, and these are sometimes challenges for our patients, particularly living with living di uh, liver disease. And so um, for as many of them as possible, we like to uh, think about whether or not liver transplant might be an appropriate uh, management course or treatment option for these patients. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, leading indications for liver transplant in the United States include, you know, viral hepatitis C and B. And then um, obviously not everybody qualifies for liver transplant. And so we need to really tailor the, um, the uh, you know, kind of therapeutic options, which for some patients might include a more palliative approach, uh, really driven at managing symptoms the best that we can. Um, unfortunately, none of the treatments that we currently have available to prescribe for patients really reverse or change the underlying of the liver disease. Uh, so many of them are aimed at symptom management, which over time can progress and get worse. All right. So what, what do you think is going to be the, uh, I don't know, is there any near-term future breakthroughs that are coming or what, you know, how do you think things need to uh, adapt in order to service people better? Um, I definitely think there are a number of novel, you know, therapeutic uh, options that are being pursued, including things like antifibrotic therapies to know how we can try to restore or regenerate um, the liver disease or liver capacity in different ways. Um, there are also um, methods that are being studied to think about um, supporting uh, end-stage liver disease, maybe somewhat akin to things like dialysis for kidney disease. Um, so we know that these are definitely strategies to kind of think about um, helping, you know, reverse and support um, patients with liver disease. And then on top of that, there are a number of novel therapeutics uh, that are being developed, certainly for hepatitis B. Most of the treatments now are, are lifelong and are effective at controlling the disease for patients who can access treatment. Um, none of them are curative yet. So the next wave of clinical trials has really been aimed at developing a cure for hepatitis B. Um, and for hepatitis C, as I mentioned, we have developed a cure. Um, and I think the other ways in which we can kind of improve the field would be to develop, if we could, uh, a vaccine to prevent hep C infection and to make the hepatitis B vaccine more widely available, particularly in parts of the world where uh, infection burden seems so high. So I think all of these things offer kind of uh, an array of hope in different arenas for helping our patients with viral hepatitis and liver disease. Well, I mean, we can only do so much. So is your focus going to be on these uh, foreign populations that now are living here? I mean, you know, if you're going to look at other countries, how, how is that going to, how are you going to be able to affect anyone there? Yeah. So, you know, we are looking at trying to develop things here and see what parts of it could be translated in other parts. And I think similarly, we're keeping an eye on what's being developed in uh, home countries to see how we could potentially translate some of those interventions here. Um, some of it starts with just like trying to figure out better ways to raise awareness in the community about these issues um, and with not just the lay community, but with providers to offer more testing when patients come in. Um, and then for hepatitis C, again, that's not 
that's not just in the foreign-born populations. It's actually more in a lot of our other hardly reached populations where you have coexisting mental health disorders, substance use disorder. And so thinking about how we can integrate um, awareness, testing, and treatment into, for example, harm reduction settings, um, medication, you know, uh, assisted therapy programs, um, and looking at how we can build more primary care capacity because we do have curative treatments that are very well tolerated for hepatitis C. So I think, um, you know, my interest is in kind of both of those areas. Well, very good. Honey, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and to, uh, you know, to get in contact? So you can certainly always reach out to me. Um, but, you know, I work up at Mount Sinai Hospital. We have a really great uh, Institute of Liver Medicine and a liver transplant program. Um, so I would encourage people to, um, you know, come to our websites and uh, we have a lot of really helpful information that would be tailored towards patients as well as providers. And we're always kind of looking at ways to uh, work with partners in the community and figure out how we can support them. So there's information about Hepatitis Outreach Network uh, on our website, Institute of Liver Medicine, and our liver transplant program all at the Mount Sinai website. Well, very good. Honey, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.